If I would ask you to speak about a subject that is most and the closest to your heart, what would it be? Would it be about your work? About your health? What would it be about? Well, over uh, about a year, for, for over a year, we've been going through the book of Colossians, verse by verse. And um, there's a great value in taking uh, one book from the Bible from the beginning all the way to the end as we all sit under the the authority of God's word as it bears upon our heart and hear what God has to say. There's a good value in doing that. But for the next several weeks, I, I want to press the pause button on the, on the book of Colossians and flick the channel, if you like, and make it a little bit more topical. We want to go through a series on a subject that has been pressing on my heart for quite some time. Now this subject, if you read the Bible carefully, I would f- you will find that it's one of the most discussed subjects. What is it? It's about the church. The church life. If I was given uh, multiple subjects to teach on, and, and I, sorry, I was meant to teach on one of these subjects, I would say that church life would most definitely be one of the top three. Why is this? Why? Because I strongly believe, and I want to choose my words carefully here, so please, I want to ask you to pay careful attention to what I'm about to say. I strongly believe that God has determined that your joy in Him would be multiplied 10,000 times more if we are committed to a local church. I'm going to say one more time. I, I believe that your joy in God would multiply 10,000 times more for committed to a local church. Seriously, who, who wouldn't want his joy in God to be multiplied? Now, when I say committed to a local church, I don't mean merely just attending two hours a week. But as the scripture defines it to be, that is, as we lay down our lives for the blood-bought people of God in this local church, your joy in God would be magnified, your reward would be great, and God will be glorified. Now may God help us that through His Word and for the next several weeks, 
What I want to do is present to you the evidence to this claim that I just made. I want to use God's infallible word in order to convince all of us of this claim. Now, one would say, well, Wissam, what in the world are you talking about? Are we now beginning to lose sight on, on our goal? I mean, isn't our goal in life is Christ, not, not so much the church? Is he not the one that we ought to know and live for? And who cares about the church? Let me tell you who cares. In Acts 20, verse 28, it says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, that's the church, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to take care for the church of God, which he, what? Obtained with his own blood. Who cares? God cares. No institution in this world that God cares for like he does for his own church. The gathering of the redeemed. The fellowship of the saints. Those blood-bought children of God are in his heart and in his radar. And that is more than any other group or organization. The greatest nations ever known to man, China, Russia, or America, are nothing compared to the church of God. In, in a level of importance to God. All these nations put together are like a, a drop, a speck of dust compared to the, the weight of the ocean. Of God's concern over his church. World War One, World War Two, Cold War, the Middle East false peace treaties. When compared to the role, to the significance of the church in the mind of God, is like lighting up a candle in 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 the in a view of the sunlight. Nothing. Jesus said, the gates of Hades will not overpower what? America? Russia? China? Will, over, will not overpower the church. What does this mean? The media, with all of its seductive and Terrible influence is like a, a morning mist. One day it will vanish. All the powers and authorities of this world, it doesn't matter what, what these authorities are, whether the federal election, the state election, it doesn't matter what it is. It will evaporate like vapor of smoke. The gates of Hades, the, the clutches of death, if you like, will prevail against every society known to man except for one. Jonathan Edwards, 
He put it beautifully in one of his sermons. He says this, and let me quote. He says, The creation of the world seems to have been especially for this end, for this purpose, that the eternal Son of God might obtain a spouse, a church, towards whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence of his nature and to whom he might, as it were, open and pour forth all that immense fountain of love and grace that was in his heart. In other words, the church, if you like, if it's a bucket, Jesus wants to pour into this bucket his infinite love. And grace. The church, with all of her fall shorts and failures, the scripture tells us, yet it remains to be that beautiful bride of Jesus, with all of her wrinkles and ruins. He rejoices over her as a man rejoices over his own bride, wedded wife. Scripture tells us that the church is the temple of God, meaning the house of God where God dwells. And so with all of its wear and tear and cracked walls and leaking roof, Jesus finds the church to be a place where he would say, this is my comfort, it's my home, it's my resting place. And he dwells in it as a man who finds comfort in his own home. Brothers, lift up your eyes high. Be encouraged. You belong to a group of people that will never cease. And we are called the very apple of God's eye. The church of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how I want to begin this series. And for today, I want to share with you three reasons why it is your privilege to commit to a local church. It's your privilege and honor to belong and to commit to a local church. It's going to be a lot more teaching than preaching, I'd love for you to open your mind and your heart to receive this truth from the scripture. So what are those reasons for to be a privilege to belong to a local church? Number one, you will enjoy participating in the purpose of God by revealing the persons of God through loving the people of God, the purpose of God, the persons of God, and the people of God. Well, we'll begin with the first one. That is, you will enjoy participating in the purpose of God. And what I mean by that, I mean the ultimate purpose of God. Do we know what God's ultimate purpose is? What is God's ultimate purpose? It is not to feed the poor and and hungry. If that was God's ultimate purpose, then he failed big time. Nor is it God's ultimate purpose 
the salvation of people. Again, if that was God's ultimate purpose, no one in the world would have been lost. Friends, brothers, sisters, God's ultimate purpose is to display the beauty of His glory. All that exists, exists for God's pleasure. Right? Yes, the scripture does tell us that God desires people to be saved. Absolutely. But that is not God's ultimate purpose. Because if it were God's ultimate purpose, then it would mean that we are more beautiful than He is. As though that we are the ones who are worthy to be in the center of the universe. And that is not true. His ultimate purpose, far more importantly, is to display the splendor of His greatness. Not ours. You see, have you ever wondered why God does what He does? What does the Bible tell us? Have you ever thought about what is God's ultimate purpose from the Scripture? You know, in the book of of Ezekiel, for example, so many times, countless of number of times. What do we read? We read God says He does what He does so that the world, so that people would know that He is the Lord. Or let me give you another example. Why were the Israelites enslaved in Egypt? And why is it that God set him free later on? Exodus 14 verse 4, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. You see, Egypt back then was the superpower of all time, at that time. And then God was going to make it clear that He's even greater than the greatest superpower ever known to man at that time. That's why God does what He does, to show the truth about who He is. Now get this. In this age, he has chosen the church to be the theater of the splendor, to display the splendor of his majesty. It is God's will that his ultimate purpose to be fulfilled in his bride, the church, and through the church to the world. And we, brethren, We have such an exclusive honor to be the loud surround sound speakers that through the symphony of us put together as a local church, the song of how glorious our God is, is sung to the world. Let me prove it to you by some passages in the scripture. First, Ephesians 3.10, it says this, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Philippians 
That's the church of Philippi. Chapter 2, 14, it says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you, that's the church of Philippi, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as light in the world. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race. Notice the plurality here. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God's ultimate purpose is to echo to the four corners of the world his excellencies. And the only mouthpiece he chose to do so is his church. God's utmost passion is to diffuse, if you like, sweet-smelling aroma and, and the garden that he's cultivating, the garden that he's nurturing and caring for, where, where his wonderful and beautiful attributes are blossoming, is ever meant to be the church. And when you're participating, when you're committing yourself to the local church, it is your honor, your privilege, brothers and sisters, to belong to it. Why? Because only then you're actually proclaiming the ultimate purpose of God. You want to proclaim God's ultimate purpose according to the passages that we read? You want to participate in enjoying, proclaiming how glorious, how splendorous God is? You want your heart to be on fire in the proclamation of who, all who is? Bring a little candle of your little heart and put it in the oven of the church and let it burn. So number one, it is our privilege to belong to a local church because it's the only institution that God said, this is my royal priesthood, my holy nation. This is the only institution on the face of this planet that God says through it, the manifold wisdom of God would shine. How do we do that? Second point, the persons of God. In the church, we get to display the persons of God like nowhere else. It is in our unity we can do that. Remember what Jesus said in his High priestly prayer in John 17, when he's prayed, basically said, Father, I pray that they would be one as you and I are one. Right? You see, our purpose is ever meant to reflect the relationship between the Father and the Son. 
let me, let me take you just a couple of steps back to help you understand something very profound, very deep. You know, a lot of times we, we see commandments floating around on the surface of the Scripture, and sadly, we, we focus on these commandments without diving deep to understand how they are connected to God's ultimate purpose. And when we don't do this hard work, we miss the whole point of why our good God gives us these commands. And you know what it's like? It's like going to the, this beautiful uh, coral reef in, in Queensland and you go uh, into it and then you try to swim with your eyes closed. So oh, I enjoyed swimming in the water. You miss the whole point of the coral reef. Because when we don't see the connection between the commandments in the scripture and God's ultimate purpose, do you know what happens? Very quickly, these commandments given by God for our good, they become a burdensome to us. And we lose joy in, in knowing how to worship Him. They become like do's and don'ts. We have to do our due diligence to find how those commandments are connected to God's ultimate purpose. Otherwise, you, you forget about worshipping Him by obeying His commands. I'll, I want to give you an example so that we understand what I mean. In Ephesians 5.25, think all wives know this verse by heart. It says, husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do you know the reason why God created the relationship called husband and wife? Well, if you haven't figured it out yet, it's not so much so that you would have a comfortable, trouble-free life. Right, men? You know that. So young men and young women... I'm sorry to spoil your dreams, but it is not just a cruisy life. Do you know why God created this command? Why did he establish this relationship between a husband and wife? So that husbands would truly give, when they truly give themselves away in loving their wives, you become like a banner displaying how Jesus truly loves his church. And every time you sacrificially give up yourself and give up what you want for the sake of your wife, you're growing in that display of basically saying to the world, hey world, this is how Jesus loves the church. You see how the relationship between husband and wife is far more than just simply a man is to love his wife. Now, what about the church? What does God want to show through our relationship towards one another? What are we meant to be reflecting? What is God's ultimate purpose for us as a church? Let me read to you if you want to flick over there. Go ahead, John 17. 
I'll just read two verses, John 17, 20 and 21. Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. What's your request, Jesus? That they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. This, in this amazing high priestly prayer, Jesus is pouring his heart out before the Father, and what is his desire? That the church would become so united together. How united? As much as the Father and the Son are united. One heart, one mind. So that what? What is the purpose of this? It tells you the rest of the verse in 21. So that the world may believe that you sent me. What does this mean? You see, in, the, in, in our most basic belief as Christians, we, we believe that God is three in one, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're three distinct persons. They're not one person, and then he wears a different mask like one is Pentecostal believe, right? Like, oh, it's, uh, I, I'm in the mood today to be a father, I'm in the mood to be a Holy Spirit, and he changes. No, that's not what we believe. We believe God is three distinct persons. They carry distinct functions and they manifest themselves in very distinct ways. Yes, they, they share one essence. Um, one being the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit enjoy one divine nature. So, in other words, when we say God is infinitely loving, what we're saying is that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are infinitely loving. When, God, when we say that God is great and he's unsearchable, for example, we mean the three persons. Why? Because they all exhibit the one collection of God's divine attributes. And so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have existed throughout eternity in a, in a, in a mutual relationship that is perfect in unity, in love. And so when we place our trust in Jesus, guess what happens? Not only do we enter into this splendid fellowship, but as the text that we just read say, it says that our relationship toward one another ought to reflect this perfect unity between the Father and the Son. We're all different persons, right? Uh, you, you don't look like me, and I trust that many of you are grateful for that. But we're called to have one heart, one mind, and that is the heart and the mind of God. And when we share this heart and mind, though we are different people, but the world would see this unity and says, I know what God is like.
Again, it doesn't mean that we have to come to this church wearing the same clothes and, and become like bananas in pyjamas or identical in everything. But in even our diversity, when there is one heart and one mind, the world would be blown away by who God is. And they will believe that the Father sent the Son to save them. And so, what does this mean? It means this, that every time you move away into your individualistic private life, away from the church of God, and you're at the same time you're claiming you're a Christian, you know what you're doing? You're moving away from reflecting the true God of the Bible, the three persons in one. And on the contrary, when you're moving towards this corporate church life, you're moving towards reflecting this unseen, unspoken, this splendid triune God. So what does this mean? It means this. The church is like a museum where God's divine portraits, if you like, of all his attributes are on display. But if we're not eager to be one heart, one mind, if we're moving away from being committed, that museum becomes like an old, broken house. Roof is leaking, walls are leaning, and the portraits are smudged. Who would ever want to come and check out the beauty displayed in this museum? No one would. The purpose of the church is to display the beauty of God. And the only way to invite the world to see this God, the God of the Bible that we worship, is if we're intentional about being united together. That's the point. And so, we've got to be decisive. We've got to commit to the church. We've got to belong to this body of Christ. Right? Very well. How do we show off these persons of God? What sort of unity we're talking about? What does that mean? We'll come to the third point. By loving the people of God. God's ultimate purpose is to display His beauty. And He intends for that beauty to be displayed first and foremost in His church. The way we're going to do this is that when we commit in loving one another the way the scripture intends for us to be loving. All right? <clears throat> Please turn to Matthew 12. Read verses 46 to 50. Matthew 12, verses 46 to 50. If you're a Christian, then you need to know that your spiritual family is far more real and authentic than your physical family could ever be. It's very important to understand. <clears throat> Matthew 12, 46 to 50. 
it says, while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, <clears throat> his mother, that's Mary, and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. <clears throat> For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. How offensive was Jesus when he said these words? This would have been very offensive to his brothers in flesh, right? Nonetheless, it was right. It's not about how offensive, it's about how right it is. And so what Jesus is saying here, and I have to say what is right, though it may be offensive. Our spiritual family is thicker than blood. Again, I want to share with you Mark 10, verses 29 and 30. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and on and on. It doesn't mean that we don't love our earthly family. No, of course not. We just read the commandment. Well, husbands, love your wife. But what it means that if you do so, if you do love your earthly family, how much all the more should you long for and yearn to belong to your heavenly family? You see, which, which relationship will last for eternity? Father to son, earthly father to son relationship or the heavenly father-to-son relationship. The things that are seen are temporal, the Bible tells us, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Again, which love is more genuine and more potent? The love of the heavenly husband, Christ, to his wife, or the love of the earthly husband? No matter how godly this husband is. I know how my wife would answer this in a heartbeat. And so which relationship then should be more transparent, more heartfelt and deeper to you? Your, your earthly brothers or your spiritual brothers? I want to take this opportunity and, and, and teach on a, on a misconception. There, there is something that, that many of us are guilty of. What is it? It is when we let our earthly relationships define for us what our spiritual relationship is like. 
as if the earthly one is more authentic, more real, just because we feel it, we touch it, we hear it. We think that it's more authentic, and the spiritual one, well, it's just a copy. That's bad theology, very bad. I don't know, many Christians, because they hold on to this wrong, very wrong theology, you know, their, their marriage is a big mess, so they have ungodly parents, and they struggle big time in enjoying their fellowship with God. And it kind of goes like this. You know, they, someone would have a, a bad father who's always angry, and I would say, oh, he's always frowning at me. Or, or my husband is, is as cold as ice. And I, I don't find real warm love or leadership in him. He's always selfish. He always wants to do what he wants to do. And for the most part, oh, I'm, I'm just treated a little more than, than just a piece of furniture at home. And then the Bible says God is meant to be my father. I pray to him and say our father wrought in heaven. Or he's meant to be my, my husband. What do I do with that? How am I meant to enjoy him? And because they carry with them that little that silly definition that they developed over time based on their earthly fathers, earthly husbands, and they bring it over into their relationship with God and one another. And they struggle. They struggle big time in identifying with viewing God as either a husband or a father because of their earthly experience. Brothers, if you take a photo of a beautiful garden, let's say, and then you take that photo and, you, and, and it, for whatever reason, it falls into the mud and gets smudged, and you look at that, does that mean that the real garden is as ugly as this photo now is? It's absurd. So if you struggle with this issue, you know what the problem is? It's not that your father or your husband are mistreating you. No, your problem is that you let your physical relationship dictate for you what the spiritual relationship is. And that's wrong theology. And wrong theology always leads to wrong view of God. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Your relationship with the earthly father is not the real thing. It is just an image. In fact, it's, it's, it's going to always be a smudged image. It's a try-hard ruin, copy of the real relationship between you and your spiritual father. And no matter how hard your earthly father or husband would try to love you, he will never meant to be defining for you what your real loving father truly is. How liberating is this? How breathtaking? Because you can have the worst kind of earthly relationship and yet you can say, it's okay by me. Why? Because I can get to enjoy God as my true father and my true bridegroom. 
You see, the spiritual is far more authentic than the earthly. Now, having established this principle, how does that apply in the context of the church? You see, when God saved you, he didn't just invite you into this private fellowship between you and him alone. It's unscriptural. You won't find that in the scripture. No. John says, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father. See, God did not only invite you to a relationship between him and you alone. No, he invited you into this, get this, into a spiritual family. God is your father. There are spiritual brothers and sisters in his spiritual family as well. He invited you to fellowship with him, but he also invited you to fellowship with your spiritual brethren. It's a family life. And because his relationship with you transcends the physical, meaning it's more real, more authentic. So also your relationship with your spiritual brothers. You've got to make an effort to show that it is more real, more authentic. This is why Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And what does he mean by loving one another? 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And what does it mean to love the brothers? Does it mean you only just see them two hours a week? That's all? You be the judge, brethren. When, when we lived under the roof of our parents and we loved our earthly brothers, did we only spend two hours a week with them? How would our earthly fathers felt if we had dared to, to say to, to our earthly fathers, ah, oh, I love my, my brethren, my brothers who live under my roof, but you know what? I'm only going to spend two hours a week with them. That's all. And I will not make any sacrifices whatsoever. Of course not. Brothers, if, if our spiritual brothers are far more real and far more authentic than those brothers who lived with us under our same roof, then how much all the more do we need to belong to our spiritual brethren, to yearn to fellowship with them? And how should this love look like? The scripture says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Brothers, how many times do, do we pull out from our spiritual commitment because of our earthly comfort? I mean, 
How much are we guilty of having different priorities from God's priorities? Would we have disagreed with Jesus? Would he said, you are my brothers? Would we have said to him, no, Jesus, you're wrong. The earthly is far more real and authentic than, your, than the spiritual. Would we have disagreed with him? Most likely we would say no. But would your lifestyle reflect that you actually disagree with Jesus? Well, this is not meant to be a guilt tree, brothers and sisters. No. This is all to say that if we continue to neglect our commitment to a local church, we are going to miss out on joy. An ocean wide of joy because we fear commitment or whatever. So again, what is my motivation to begin this series? Let me repeat it again. I strongly believe that when that God determined that your joy in Him will be multiplied 10,000 times more when you're committed to your brethren. Not merely attending two hours a week, no, but laying down your life for the blood-bought people of God, the local church. When you do that, your joy in God will be magnified and God will be glorified. How does it work? Let me repeat it again. When you're committed to the local church, you will be participating in the purpose of God, in displaying the purpose of God. How? By revealing the persons of God. Through what? Through your love towards the people of God. This is how it works. This is how it works. And those who move away from the commitment to a local church, they miss out on this wonderful way of life. Well, why local church? Why not the universal church? Why this particular group of people? And how do I even love them? We'll talk about all these things and many, many more uh, in the next upcoming weeks. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that, that this series would, would open our heart to the truth of the Scripture and that you would lead us to live the way you intended for us to live. Not in our own little islands, but in a group of brothers and sisters that you have redeemed out of this world. Lord, cause us to, to be challenged and to be convicted if need be. And it really doesn't matter, Lord, if we're offended, but ultimately we want to obey you from our hearts by committing to a local church and laying down our lives for the brothers that you loved, that you yourself laid down your life for. We pray that we do this for Jesus' sake and by his strength. Amen.